Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. Today we discuss facts and death. Yes, we depart from the usual format to bring you two fascinating interviews. We have Mivan Babakar and Phoebe Arnold from Full Fact to discuss fact-checking and its role in the digital age. And later, we'll be speaking to the obituaries editor of The Times, Simon Pearson, on the art of writing the last word. That's coming up on today's media podcast. To start the show, in this world of claim and counterclaim, where journalism is underfunded and there's a growing distrust of politicians and the mainstream media, where does one turn for verifiable truth? Full Fact is an independent charity who've given themselves the mission to fact-check public figures, broadcasters and the press. Mivan Babakar and Phoebe Arnold join me now. Hello to you both. Hello. Uh, Now, you launched in 2010 which, looking back on it now, feels like a golden age of truth and decency, (laughs) pre-fake news as we know it now. Why did you launch seven years ago? Okay, so it's not so much the date, but there were fact-checking organisations in the US called PolitiFact and Uh FactCheck.org. And Peter O'Born, who used to work for Telegraph, he wrote a book called The Rise of Political Lying. And in it, he said there's a burning need for fact-checkers like they have in the US, in the UK. At roughly the same time, Onora O'Neill was talking a lot about trust and transparency in the media. She did these really good wreath lectures, I think in 2002, where she said that our ambition is not to place trust blindly as small children do, but to trust claims using information. And so we need information to judge the claims that we hear. Now, our director, Will Moy, was working in the House of Lords at the time for a crossbench peer called Lord Lowe. Um, And he was seeing a lot of briefings coming in from lobby groups and inaccurate claims in those were making it into parliamentary debates and sometimes even into legislation. And so he kind of put all these three things together and came up with the idea for full fact. I mean, unquestionably, we live in a world where press releases make it to air. I mean, I've been guilty of that myself when I've been sent a press release at 11pm and I'm about to go on air at one in the morning and it fits perfectly with what I'm about to talk about. and There's no one to call. On the other hand, I've always felt as a broadcaster, not even a journalist as such, that it's my responsibility to at least have an air of scepticism about those facts. And you would hope that journalists who are working for the print media, it's part of their training to do fact checking. So isn't the creation of an organisation like yours an admission that something's going wrong? Shouldn't, Shouldn't instead people have said, let's train our journalists better? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And funnily enough, when our first fact checker gave his notice, his boss said, Oh, fact checkers, we used to have those. So (laughs) I think you're completely right. And I suppose maybe it's partly down to um, the struggling finances of of a lot of media operations where 
even though they may have a desire to check facts, they don't necessarily have the resources. And that's something that we get a lot of requests for, particularly during the election and the referendum last year. I think we had something like 69 requests for briefings and interviews. And that was stuff that was kind of on the record. And then apart from that, we had lots of citations. So people kind of definitely use us as a resource as much as we're also holding journalists and politicians to account. And I guess, Mivan, you're actually competing with the promotions industry, aren't you, with PR, and there's more money behind that. We all know how that works. You know, you're a tin food company. You go to the PR company, you say, we want a stat that says eight out of 10 cats prefer our product, (laughs) you know, and then they make it true. There's no real way of checking those facts unless you're the people who did the research in the first place. Yeah, and that's why we also call for people who make claims in the public domain to actually also release that information especially at least when it's government that makes those claims if you're going to come out and say that we've put government money towards for doing this research and we're not going to publish it openly but we are going to tell you what that research led to and this is our big new headline claim that we're going to plaster across the country we need to give people the research and tools to be able to judge that claim for themselves and judge that research for themselves So how does your organisation work then on a daily basis? What's it actually like working for you? Normally we have someone who comes in, looks at the news, picks out claims that they think are interesting to our audience or might surprise our audience if we fact check them. And who is your audience? um, It's people who work professionally in politics and journalism. Um, And then what we call the kind of political junkies, so people who follow journalism, like some people follow football, um, and maybe they kind of see our fact checks almost as a way to kind of get one up on their friends. Um, And then the last kind of broad and vague category is, I guess, people who are interested in issues, so the NHS or benefits or immigration. This might seem like a naive question, because in a way it's obvious you just look for the facts, but it's never that simple in politics, is it? How do you approach a subject with genuinely no bias, no prejudice? Because you take a subject like immigration, you've got Migration Watch, for example, who clearly have an Mm -hmm. agenda, but then clearly also have the promise that they're trying to present facts. I mean, all these organisations that have a bias have their own fact-checking teams too. Mm -hmm. You're right. It's really hard. Yeah. We have quite a lot of structures in place so first of all our recruitment process we do a lot of tests on people to kind of see how they talk about politics and we try and judge whether they have any sensitivity towards the whole idea of neutrality or whether they're just so biased that they don't even realize they're being biased and actually quite interestingly we find that historians make really great fact checkers which we didn't know when we first started out (laughs) but we've hired a lot of them (laughs) Um, and that's i think probably because you can hold lots of information in your head number one but also lots of different interpretations of information Mm. and having that ability to interpret facts and figures in different ways with different sensitivities is actually really important to fact checking but i mean if you're trying to aid the viewer or the listener to come to a decision about an important story i sometimes think as a presenter on these shows you know when the fact checking person comes on really what that person's doing is they're saying yeah what you've just heard is simplistic and actually the truth is nuanced but the audience just get that gist All they get is the gist that it's complicated. But it doesn't actually help them. It doesn't tell them, yes, it's true or no, it's false. It actually can muddy the water a bit for some of those viewers and listeners. Yeah, I think this is a problem that we struggle with and definitely fact-checkers all around the world struggle with is the kind of boring (laughs) refrain of, oh, actually, I think you'll find it's more complicated. Um, But one thing that's a kind of big topic of contention is the idea of using ratings. And one of the reasons we don't use those whereas a lot of fact-checkers do, is because we don't like telling people what to think. Um, We see it as our role to give them the information to judge what they're hearing. Um, And that's why we're kind of looking more and more at education work, so educating in schools and universities and in journalism classrooms and that kind of thing. 
like we can't fact check all the claims so we need to teach other people to do it for themselves but also the, the world is complex like and lots of people are painting it as black and white too often and our job is to add in all the shades of gray and unfortunately that that is saying it's complex and giving people a more nuanced view of the world but that's because it better reflects the world and would you like to see more penalties for particularly political parties that do take it further than the data says and i'm thinking back to the referendum campaign here in the battle bus claim you know one thing that i heard time and again from all the fact-checking organizations was what they've written on the battle bus isn't true in terms of the amount that would be saved from the eu because of all the complicated reasons we won't go into here uh, but that was a simplistic number yeah. and that question was put to Nigel Farage and it was put to Boris Johnson and they deflected it should there be some sort of legislation that prevents them from saying it in the first place um, I think that's probably something for politicians to hash out but I do think it's incredible that the leaflet put through everyone's door by the electoral commission wasn't reviewed for accuracy we found quite a lot of mistakes in that and I yeah I just find it so surprising that basically you can give out information that's not correct and that's publicly funded it happened on both sides by the way it, it wasn't just the vote leave campaign remain also put out a lot of inaccurate information in that yeah, same or exaggerated yeah. yeah talk to me about your role with social media companies now because facebook have finally admitted that more needs to be done in terms of fake news across social networks definitely and that's really welcome and the fact that they're talking to people outside of the, their own company is really great um but i do think there's quite a long way to go so probably the main thing that people will have heard about is this third-party fact-checking pilot um, which they're doing in the US and Germany and France. Um, and I think the idea with that is that users can flag fake news stories, URLs only, not memes or pictures, which I would like them to add into that pilot. And then fact checkers get access to that data. And then when a user tries to share a story that's been fact checked by fact checkers, although not all of them are necessarily nonpartisan ones, in my opinion, you'll get a kind of uh, box saying this has been flagged as possibly dubious disputed by fact checkers Mm. and do you want to continue to share it so that's kind of their first attempt from a fact checking point of view at helping users to understand when they're seeing fake news but i do think it would be really good to see some data about how many stories being flagged and how well the scheme is actually working uh at the moment we don't have that so we Mm. can't really see whether it's a success or not it's also not running in the UK yet, which is the key thing to say. Yep. Um, and we're not involved in it. But what we are involved in with Facebook is the release of these top 10 tips. I'm not saying top 10. They're just 10 <laughs> tips. And they're, they're good and what, tips. what are your 10 tips? For example, being sceptical of headlines. They don't always necessarily match up to the story. Right, so they're tips for readers of how to identify fake news. Yeah, absolutely. Like check the URL, find the evidence. How do they know these things? Um, like check all the, the basics photos. Yeah. that people listening to this will know, but that not everyone always thinks about. And actually, Phoebe, when you said you'd like to see memes and pictures included, the obvious example that sprang to my mind then with Sean Spicer's alternative facts was the photo of the Obama inauguration as a meme split mm. down the middle with a picture of the Trump inauguration yeah. and the amount of people that were on uh, the, what do they call it in the States? Is that the Mall? I don't know. Yeah, Whatever the, so, the, yeah. the big The big road in Washington at the, at the inauguration. That was a meme that went everywhere. Yeah. Is that the kind of thing where you'd, you'd want Facebook to analyse it and say, yes, that is an accurate representation yeah. of both events? Imagine if that had been flagged as dubious to all those people who shared it. Mm. Wouldn't that be great? It's about stopping the spread of misinformation more than it is anything else, right? It's, it's if something is wrong before it proliferates across the whole of the internet and everyone shared it to their friends and misled their family and everything like shared it with i don't know the community groups it's really important that we at least give these people the chance 
to correct it and to stop it moving. And so what's the future on this? I get the sense, my van, this is your department. Uh, automated fact-checking? Yes, which is a, a scary... shiver down the spine. Yes, yeah. it's a scary term. Ridley Scott type. It's, yeah, it's, go on. And it's not actually necessarily very descriptive of what it is. Um, the great thing about the nature of public debate is that everybody repeats themselves. Politicians and campaigners repeat themselves. So inevitably, a fact-checker will eventually, or a journalist, will have a story written about that main claim that is going around the internet. So it's about how can you take that claim one time do the fact check, but also then spot every single instance of it repeated. Take the 350 million claim, for example. We fact checked it very early on in the campaign, (laughs) but that fact check wasn't side by side with every single instance of it online. So we're building tools that monitors the media, monitors TV subtitles, monitors everything said in Parliament, and then flags every time misinformation is repeated. And that will help us scale and target our work better. It will help us quantify our own effect in the world a bit as well. Like, did that intervention, did that correction actually mean there were fewer instances of that claim eventually? Yeah, it lets us do more with a team of 11, basically. Me, Van Babakar and Phoebe Arnold. For more on what they do, head to fullfact.org. Coming next, how to write an obit for The Times. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Now, obituary writers have been rather busy of late. Carrie Fisher, Prince Muhammad Ali. It seems as the world's baby boomers reach a certain age, every week seems to bring with it news of another dead celeb. The obituaries editor of The Times is Simon Pearson. Originating from a small mining town in North Nottinghamshire, not exactly a hotbed of journalism, he set his sights on a career as a hack, from the age of 11, when a family friend travelled to Vietnam to cover the after-effects of the war. After studying journalism, Simon worked his way up from the Mansfield Chronicle advertiser to become night editor at The Times, and now on to his current position. So, with so many big names seemingly dying all the time, how does he choose who to write about? There are the great and the good, 
and the really famous who you you have to cover. Everyone knows them, whether it's the Queen or whether it's a former Prime Minister or whether it's a um, very well-known actor or whether it's one of your top QCs. And then you've got a huge range of people, some of whom automatically come onto your radar because people phone up. Um, they put their names in the death notices and they are pretty well known uh, in their sphere mm. and you commission those uh, obituaries. So sometimes people phone up and do they pay to put a death notice in? Yes, the death notice is um, a sort of small classified advert mm. in which they announce the death of uh, of somebody and often um, you find out about quite prominent people through mm. through the death notices. And that alerts you to it? yes. What what are you looking for when you're looking at your own death notices, thinking, ah, there's a story there? Well, there are two things. You're looking for relatively well-known people whose deaths have not been announced on radio, television, uh, in the news pages of the newspapers. And you're looking for interesting lives, a hint of a story. Because after all, obituaries are not just about recognising the recently dead. It's about entertaining the readers with colourful stories of people's lives. I mean, one of the most important things we consider when weighing up whether to carry an obituary or not is, was this person interesting? And whereas once upon a time, I think judges, generals, air marshals and MPs automatically got an obituary, that's not the case. Um, If someone's been an MP for a long time, but actually are not very interesting, We'll say, well, let's not bother. So Um, there's a change going on. And when you say you're looking for a story, so what makes you prick up your ears? What are the kind of details that you think, aha? I think operating in oddball areas of life. Well, it's a bit like you you and your podcast, looking (laughs) for people from uh, sort of different uh, areas of uh, endeavour. Uh, which are going to interest your readers because they don't know very much about them. For example, I think uh, a few years ago we came across a chap on a council estate in Redditch who was making the finest fly fishing rods in the world and making probably no more than 15 or 20 a year. And you know some of the very rich businessmen from Japan, etc., would come to this council estate to his back room mm. uh, and choose a rod, uh, most unusual. And he made a good story. So you're looking for people who have a different story to tell. And how do you tell that story? Because that's not one you can research easily using the internet, is it? That's not one you no, can find archive. You, you, come, you, come, you come across them by accident. Um, I think with that one, we had a keen fisherman who had bought a rod off him and heard he had died and thought we ought to know about it. And so, and it was probably two or three weeks after he had died and he phoned us and said, I think you should look at this chap. And of course we did. Okay, so how did you end up being the obituaries editor? Right. I'd been uh, essentially a senior editor on the Times for a long time, 25 years or so. And I wrote a book. Uh, it was the biography of a man called um, Roger Bushell. And uh, Roger Bushell was a big X on The Great Escape. Uh, I had been interested in him 
since I was a little boy, since my dad took me to see the film at the ABC Cinema in Mansfield and then bought me Paul Brickhill's book of The Great Escape, I think the following Christmas or, or something like that. And I'd ha- I had this incredible uh, sort of interest in this man for years and years and years and researched nuggets, etc. And then I had this amazing breakthrough. Um, I went for lunch with Ben McIntyre, who's a well-known author and works for the Times, and I told him what I knew about this man, and he just said, you have got to get on with this book instead of just talking about it. I wrote to the Imperial War Museum, and this was in the autumn of 2011, having nurtured um, this story for a very long time, and uh, I got a response that was really quite surprising. They wrote back and said, we can help you. The family of Roger Borshaw, who lived in South Africa, have been in touch with us in the past few weeks, wanting to donate his archive to the museum, the Imperial War Museum. And uh, incredibly fortuitous and say, do you want to be put in touch? So I, I was put in touch and I got on with them and they gave me access to Roger Bushell's archive letters, etc. And the Imperial War Museum got involved and commissioned me to write a book, which I did. Uh, that was what I was planning to do anyway. So anyway, I wrote this book about Roger Bushell and uh, I spoke at Cheltenham. And at about the same time, that's the Cheltenham uh, Literary Festival. And at about the same time, the, the Times had a, a change of editor and the new editor was looking for somebody to take over uh, the register, the obituary section. I think as a result of um, the book I'd written, uh, and obviously my interest in biographies, uh, he thought that uh, I might be worth a chance. (laughs) And I'd been night editor for a very, very long time. Uh, So it was probably time for a change. And so by those um, fortuitous circumstances, in many respects, I had a, a new career on the Times, and a very interesting one. Probably in some ways the most unusual obit we have run, which nobody else ran, was Lord Lucan. Mm. And we ran him last year, the beginning of uh, last year, after the courts had ruled that he was dead. Nobody's found a body, nobody knows where he is. Generally, it's not known what, uh, what happened to him, but his family sought a ruling from the courts and once they'd done that, we published his obituary and we'd commissioned it some weeks beforehand. I think it was one of the most compelling uh, reads. It was beautifully done, very cleverly done and um, was probably unexpected. It brought together everything that everybody knew, but it took everyone through the events and I think uh, painted a rich picture of him, which maybe was not altogether known. And therefore, I think it did add something to the Lucan story. So let's talk about that other category of people, the really famous people. Oh, yeah. Presumably there's a store, is there, so that if Prince Philip dropped dead today, there's an obituary ready to go. How often does that get updated? There is an obituary of Prince Philip ready to go. And the current version was written last year. Just as there is an obituary of the Queen, um, and that was first written in the early 1950s, um, was updated again last year uh, in the aftermath of the last big celebration, which was the Diamond Jubilee, I think. So we're continually updating obituaries of that 
kind. I think also styles change under the current editor of the Times, John Witherow. Uh, he wants far more anecdotes, far more colour and insights into the family. So we have to take uh, the stock obits we've got. We've got about um, 5,000 wow. or so that have been built up over 60 years or more. Most of them when it comes to publication, I need rewriting or editing very heavily. And it's very rare that you can go into the library, pull out an obituary and put it straight in the paper. You're not dealing so much with death, but celebrating life. You're celebrating someone's achievements, telling the story of uh, usually a successful life, or at least uh, in part a successful life, where people have achieved great things in, in their lives. I think when you're writing a feature article about someone in this respect, call it an obituary, you're researching a life, a biography, it's fascinating, and I don't think you dwell on the death, so to speak. But there are times, I think, particularly when people die young, there are some very sad stories, or have been very sad stories, of, um, of people who have gone young, and you find out a lot about them and their families and everything, and I think it does, it does touch on you. One of the things which strikes me as an individual more than anything else is the number of people who loomed so large in my childhood in the late 50s and 60s the sort of television stars television was coming into very much coming into its own there and the pop stars of the day everything who regularly feature on our obituaries pages now mm-hmm. um, I find that quite a, quite a moment when I, I get my sort of flashback to being, being a child uh, and it happens quite regularly because events and personalities that loomed so large then are coming through the pages I edit. It's a way that people measure out their own life, isn't it? I mean, you saw that really clearly, I think, with Bowie's death last year, that for a lot of baby boomers or people born just after that, yes. there's someone who was younger than them, yes. who was cooler than them, yes. who died. Yes. It was an incredible reaction to, to Bowie's death, probably more than any other I can think of in the past few years. Mm. He had an enormous impact. And what about when there are massively unanswered questions? I mean, Michael Jackson springs to mind here, where, you know, there was a court case, but nothing was ever pinned to him. You know, you type his name into a search engine. One of the first things you're going to see are questions about child abuse. And yet, unassailable musical legend, there's an incredible story there about, you know, child through to teenager through to pop star. How much emphasis do you give something like that, which you know maybe in 50 years' time might be the story, but isn't now? Well, um, I think it's a big obituary, and that's a complex obituary as well. You cover the music and the huge impact of um, his music. But you also tell the story of this troubled life, and I think it's uh, you don't hold back. You give you give the whole story, uh, and I think if you look at the archive, there are some obituaries that you'd actually like to uh, write again. Jimmy Savile is a classic example, mm. where um, the obit was a, a great tribute to him. To his charitable work held him up in high esteem, and if you go to the library and look at it, you think, "My goodness, we got that wrong." Everyone got it wrong, but it does make you think. The obituary is not necessarily the last word. I mean, obviously, we're talking pretty much in the shadow of Martin McGuinness having just died. I mean, yeah. there's an example of someone who I imagine their obituary has changed dramatically over the past two decades. Yes. I mean, we wouldn't have written an obituary 
until relatively recently, I, I don't think, until he entered the political... It's, there's a lot of argument over who deserves an obituary and who doesn't deserve an obituary. And again, I think that's changing in, in the sense that if somebody had a major impact on society, in one way or another, for good or for bad, we will cover them. And clearly, McGuinness became a quite significant figure over the past 15 years. But I mean, I, I pick that example because not only is it recent, but also what's going on politically in Ireland at the moment is a live situation. So I imagine almost his obituary would have been different uh, if it were written two months ago than if it were written. Uh, yes, it was updated um, on the day of publication um, because of events in uh, Northern Ireland and they're ongoing. Mm. Um, the question is, where do you, where do you stop? And I don't think an obituary is actually about necessarily bringing you right up to the hour. Um, it's the story of a life. It's not the story of events. Mm. And sometimes obituaries, I think, get confused. They tell you an awful lot about a great event and less about the person involved. And then there are the very notable people who die very suddenly and no one expected them to. Yes. Um, I'm <laughs> trying to think of example. I mean, obviously George Michael was recent, although he'd had trouble with drugs in the past. I guess you had something. Uh, well, no, no, we did. We did have it. Figures like that we commission all the time. I mean, last week we were having a look at... Um, Kirk Douglas turned 100 recently, mm. so we had a good check through him. It's a good bet. You know, you heard we heard some considerable time ago that John Hurt had cancer. His obit was written and up to date. And Clive James has been very ill for a long time. And his, actually, he seems to have um, lived a... Uh, a great deal longer than people expected him, or he himself expected. Yeah, much and we've probably we've, <laughs> and has written a great deal since we had his obituary rewritten a couple of years ago, um, and so that's uh, com- is being updated all the time. But we sometimes we're caught out. Um, Gene Wilder died uh, mm. late last year. Uh, and we hadn't got a strong obit on him at all. And we had to wait a day, which was absolutely infuriating because the Telegraph did have a good one. They put it up online uh, and we were a day behind. It does happen. It happens to them. It happens to us. Uh, I think um, that's the way it goes sometimes. But you're always aware of commissioning those people, uh, really prominent people. We do try to make sure we've got good obits in the style we want, ready to go. So even if they're relatively young and nothing in their career suggests that they are about to have a tragic accident. Yeah, I mean, we do. There are, I mean, certainly we commissioned Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton um, at the start of the American election campaign. We've even, during Brexit, uh, we commissioned um, Nigel Farage. You never quite know what what uh, what happens, what's coming next, and so we're very aware, and we are uh, commissioning all the time. I mean, sometimes there are quite funny consequences. I think some years ago we were doing uh, an obit of the American writer Bill Bryson, who happened to be um, worked for the Times at uh, one stage or another, and so we got a rumour that he had um, taken out British citizenship. And my colleague, and he was um, a chap called Andrew Riley, had phoned um, Bryson's agent and said, look, can I speak to you in complete confidence? We're, d- we're doing a stock obit on Bill Bryson. Can you tell us whether he took out British citizenship or not? And the agent had said, OK, well, look, I'll try to find out for you and uh, I'll get back tomorrow. And uh, the following day, um, Andrew got a call and it was Bill Bryson. <laughs> and he said, uh, I want you to know that um, 
I am still an American citizen. I haven't taken out British citizenship. Uh, as it happens, I'm writing a feature for the Times at the moment, and I hope to goodness my article appears long before yours. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone ever asked to read their obituary? Um, no. I have had people ringing up asking if we'd be interested in writing their obituary <laughs> while they're still alive. <laughs> and we have interviewed people directly uh, for their obituary, but it doesn't happen very often. That's a fascinating interview. People must be prepared to say things that they know are only going to be published after they've died. Yes. That they wouldn't say when they're alive. Well, I think there are, there are some newspapers, particularly in America, which have done video obits. And it's a chance for um, the subject maybe to say things which uh, they wouldn't normally say in the um, uh, normal run of things. Uh, but we we tried with a handful of people to see if they'd be interested in doing a video bit, a sort of uh, video testimony. And we haven't had any takers yet. We had a couple who put us on hold and said they'd think about it and get back to us. But the majority just said no. Have you ever had to write an obituary of someone you know? Uh, yes, I have. I have. Uh, there was uh, a friend who died last year who was um, an architect who I knew a lot about. And I think that was that was quite difficult. M- must be hard to write in the sort of clinical journalistic yeah. style about someone you're emotionally involved with. It is. Uh, and I... I I didn't actually write the obituary. I handed it over to someone else and gave them a lot of information. I think it's very difficult sometimes to... I don't think you necessarily should Mm. uh, write the obituaries about people you're very close to. I think you have to take a stand back and give it to someone who can be perhaps be more objective. That was Simon Pearson. Thank you to him. That interview was recorded originally for my other podcast series, The Modern Man. You can find that and uh, many of the other interviews we've done for that show at modernman with two ends.co.uk. Uh, that's it for today. Thank you to Simon, Phoebe, and Mivan, and to you for listening. This episode is dedicated to Andy Winter, who works at a students' union and says, Ollie, can you big up our student media groups, URN Radio? Impact Magazine and NSTV. Consider it done. Andy, thank you for your support. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and the media podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.